Our scripture today is from John 2, verses 1 to 12. The story of the wedding at Cana. There, now you can see me. The wedding at Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, they don't have any wine. Jesus replied, woman, what does that have to do with me? My time hasn't come yet. His mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby were six stone water jars used for the Jewish cleansing ritual, each able to hold about 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to his disciples, <clears throat> or Jesus said to the servants, excuse me, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now, draw some from them and take it to the head waiter. And they did. The head waiter tasted the water that had become wine. He didn't know where it had come from though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the groom and said, everyone serves the good wine first. They bring out the second rate wine only when the guests are drinking freely. You kept the good wine until now. This was the first miraculous sign that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, Jesus and his mother, his brothers and his disciples went down to Capernaum and stayed there a few days. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be Thanks to God. God. Uh, if you have a Voices Together, I invite you to turn to number 43. We're going to sing a couple of new hymns today, which you know, ideally we would have been singing in the same room. Um, this verse has uh, several verses, or this hymn has several verses, but it is relatively simple. Uh, Jeanette's going to play through it once, and then I'm going to sing through all of the verses. The, the little chorus has uh, really nice harmonies, so you'll have to sing those along with me from home. Be the bread to move. 
Beautiful. I just want to test that you can hear me. Could I get a, okay. Wonderful. I'm getting a little echo. So I think maybe we need to mute. I'm just going to mute this. Yeah. Okay. You got it. Okay. Testing again. Does that sound good without the echo? Okay. Excellent. We are in the Gospel of John, have been for a couple of weeks now, and we will be for several more months. So we get this uh, really wonderful opportunity that the Revised Common Lectionary never offers, which is to walk more slowly uh, through the Gospel of John and follow the narrative arc from start to finish. So it seems important here toward the beginning of our explorations into the Gospel of John to do some of the overarching um, understanding. So I'm going to talk a little bit about John's legacy, the Gospel of John's legacy, and also the context for the Gospel of John. Right out of the gates, the Gospel of John has a mixed legacy. It has a long legacy of being read and understood as a polemic against Jews, as being a supersessionist text that takes a line through the uh, religious experience of Judaism and then to the coming of Jesus and then to Christianity superseding Judaism. It is important to name that out loud and important, therefore, to take great care in how we read the Gospel of John. Some of that anti-Jewish stuff in the Gospel of John, some of it is just simply the result of bad Christian reading for generations <laughs> that's just been piled up uh, for centuries. Um, so some of that isn't actually there, but has just been read wrong. Some of it, however, is actually in the text. So that also needs to be said, which means that I am going to, Amy and I, as the primary preachers and anybody else who we invite into preaching the gospel of John this season, we're going to need to take really great care in how we read, and we're going to do our best, and we might mess up at times, um, and just invite you to be collaborators um, on this journey of reading the Gospel of John together in all of its complexity. Another bit of legacy for the Gospel of John is that some of our best Christian theological poetry comes from the Gospel of John. Some of the most beautiful stuff, the treasured gems that have been sacred to our people for generations. Now, these sacred gems are admittedly sort of in the midst of a very loquacious Jesus. Jesus in the Gospel of John, oh my goodness, does he talk? <laughs> so we get to hang out with the very loquacious Jesus and also get to enjoy um, the legacy of some of that best theological Christian poetry that the Gospel of John has so beautifully penned. Um, to, to still reach out and, and inspire us thousands of years later. Now, a bit about John's context, the context for the writing of the Gospel of John. At its core, John is being written in the midst of an internal dispute. The word Christian doesn't even exist yet at the writing of the Gospel of John. 
There are Jesus followers, yes. And the Jesus followers are writing this gospel of John. But this is a treatise. This is a story that happens in the messiest of a messy middle. As Jews are sorting themselves out, as they are wrestling with one another, as they are disputing who is in, who is out, what is most important, what is the most faithful path for a covenanted people, this is an internal dispute that a people is having amongst itself. And it's more than just two groups. <laughs> like, it's not just that there are two groups who are disputing with one another, one of which will become what we know as modern Judaism and the other of which will become what we know as modern Christianity. There's more than just two groups, just as you think about the start of the Anabaptist movement. There's a lot that's happening at this time. There is a birth happening, a birth of an entirely new religion that didn't exist before. And that birth takes an era. You know, I, I was thinking about the civil rights movement, the civil rights era. And obviously we're still working at um, getting more civil rights for more people, but we can look to a point in the sixties in particular, that was the heart of the civil rights era. In the midst of those years, it was just a movement. Something was getting born, but in the middle of it, it's real messy. So that's where we are with the gospel of John. We're in the birth pangs of an entirely new religion. And it's more than just these two groups. There is complexity, there is nuance, and there is messy strife about how to be a Jesus follower, how to be a covenanted Jewish believer. And those nuances and complexities are they still exist within our Christian tradition and they still exist within Judaism. So in many ways, that messiness is, even though it did, we did manage to birth a new religion that we now have a name for called Christianity, that messiness has, has continued and is internal to each of our traditions. John was written by a Jesus following community that was slowly on its way toward becoming Christian. And at this time, they are, at the writing of John, they are a minority sect with less institutional power than the Jewish authorities. So that's important to note. This is being written by a minority community that has less power. But it's only going to take a couple of centuries for those tables to turn entirely, completely, with Constantine and his empire, who will turn Judaism into the minority group, granting full and complete institutional power and the abuse of that power to a particular and powerful form of Christianity that entered an unholy marriage with empire. So John is being written by a minority group struggling against a powerful institutional other, and only a couple of centuries later, the tables turn completely and Christianity becomes the group with the institutional power and the inheritors of the Jewish legacy become the more minority group that don't have access to that power. So that's important context to know. One last thing about context, and that is that John, the writer of the Gospel of John, has his feet in two worlds 
in the world of temple Judaism and in the world of the Roman Empire. The author of the Gospel of John has his feet in both those worlds and belongs to both. He's an insider. He's an insider in temple Judaism and an insider in the Roman Empire. And he's painting a picture of a Jesus way, a Jesus following way, a Jesus way that he believes is a more faithful way, a Jesus way that he wants to invite his worlds to join him on. He wants his worlds to give way to this new vision. He believes in it. He believes in the vision that is cast by the birth, life, teachings, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He sees good news for all. He sees liberation for all and continuity with the I am who spoke creation into being. The I am with whom his people have sought to live in covenanted relationship for generations. So he sees continuity. He sees a vision for liberation and he wants his worlds to come along with him. A couple of weeks ago, when we entered the Gospel of John, we encountered John the Baptist, who began his testimony with I am not, in contrast to the I am that Jesus will embrace for the rest of the Gospel. This is something I mentioned just a couple of weeks ago that we're going to continue to listen for in the Gospel of John. Where is Jesus's I am? And how does the Gospel of John trace that thread of continuity from the I am who breathed creation into being? To Jesus. John the Baptist says, I am not. And John the Baptist points forward, not to himself. So he's, he's asked, who are you? And he says, I am not. And he just point immediately points outside of himself and points forward. He points toward while naming the difficulty of recognition that he himself had. He had difficulty recognizing Jesus, and yet he has recognized Jesus. And he points toward Jesus. He points toward the only begotten of God. He points toward the word made flesh, the one who dwelt and tabernacled and tented with us, the one who was full of grace and truth. John the Baptist points toward that one. And I love this grace of truth. This is another thing that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I'm going to continue to hold up as a lens as we walk through the gospel of John sort of like um, it's another one of those beautiful pairs like justice and righteousness that kiss um, in one of the Psalms that justice and righteousness, justice and mercy kissing. Here we have grace and truth embodied together in the incarnate one, another gorgeous pair that kiss in the incarnate one of God. Last week, you heard, behold, the Lamb of God. So John the Baptist, again, pointing out away from himself and toward. Behold, the Lamb of God. Look, John the Baptist says. And, and right at that moment in the gospel, it begins to transition from John the Baptist to Jesus. In fact, two of John the Baptist's disciples turn toward Jesus and respond to his come and see. And that's what they do. I just spent, many of you know, I just spent a week in a house in Virginia um, with nine of us, John's family, including my three nibblings from Germany, whom I had not seen in more than three years. 
So it was really good to be with them. They are ages seven, eight, and 10. And let me just tell you, there was a lot of come and see. <laughs> because kids know instinctively that this is the best sort of invitation to elicit engagement, right? So that come and see, hey, I want to show you something. Hey, can you come into this other room? Hey, I just built this thing. Can you come look at it? Can you, can you help me with this thing? They know that that is the way to get engagement versus the half attention that an adult might give them if they just use their words, right? The best way is to get an adult on their feet and moving toward a thing. And then you might just have their attention and their engagement. I love that Jesus uses the come and see. And then almost immediately, Philip turns around and uses come and see on Nathaniel. Here's the invitation. Come see the kind of invitation that elicits engagement. And today, today, Jesus's first public sign, as many more are given the opportunity to see, to see what Jesus is about. And what they see is in this public sign, they see that Jesus, unlike regular hosts who serve their second rate wine at the end of a party when no one will notice because they've already had enough wine that their palate is a little less discerning, shall we say? Jesus offers at the end of the party the best, the best wine, the best to all the guests, not just certain honored ones. The best is what Jesus offers to all guests, all the way through to the end. And Jesus in his first public act, his first miracle is revealing God's abundance and generosity of spirit. People have come to that space and they see abundance, generosity of spirit. As we continue to tread with care into the mystical, strange, poetic, beautiful, mysterious, harrowing, polemical, and prophetic gospel of John, may we hold that beautiful kissing pair before us, grace and truth. May we come and see. May we see God's abundance and generosity of spirit. May be, these be the lenses through which we discern what is the heart of God. May we hold all of this before us. The incarnate one to whom John the Baptist points, the only begotten to whom John the evangelist testifies, the lamb of God, the anointed one, whom many began to follow, is the one who is full of grace and truth. Come, see, taste God's abundance. Amen, and may it be so. Our hymn of response um, is 524 in Voices Together. The, the words are new, but this is a familiar Irish folk melody or English folk melody. Um, some of you might re recognize it as the water is wide. Um, and, and the last time I sang this song, it was at a wedding. So that's why I 
chose this one. So it, it speaks particular in particular to a couple, um, but it talks about um, where love can be found. And certainly that as Megan, as you were talking about um, justice and peace kissing or grace and truth kissing, I was like, well, okay, so we can have that as an image of the two that are spoken of in this, in this text. But also the, the sentiments of the, of the lyrics in this text really speak to our prayer for Christian community um, or any community and relationship. So I invite you to, to join me. I will be singing verses one, three, and five. 